You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. I was in high school. My youth pastor asked me to give my testimony on a weekend retreat. I think it was at Blue Lake down near Andalusia. Some of you have probably been there. And so we were there at the Methodist camp, and I went back to my room and pulled out my Bible, pulled out a piece of paper, and started thinking through, what does my testimony look like? It was a lot shorter when I was 16 than it is now, but I still was trying to clarify it, figure out what's going on here. And I began to kind of wrestle with this and wrote down some of the things that I was convicted the Lord had been doing in my life as a a child, as an adolescent, how he cared for me. But I began to grow a little frustrated because I was worried I didn't have a really good testimony. You ever have that feeling? It's like trying to figure out how to tell my story, but it's not as good as the other guy's story. You know, those dramatic conversions, Damascus Road kind of things, right? Where the person is clearly not walking with Jesus. And maybe there's some addiction going on or just some some agnosticism or atheism and they have this come to Jesus moment or they show up at church on the wrong day and the Lord shows up and just saves them and it's like a blinding light like it was for Paul on the road to Damascus and I'm thinking Jesus I don't have a story like that I've been in church since I was born and as I was kind of praying and 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 wrestling with that and experiencing like like how like who's going to care what I have to say if I don't have a great Damascus Road experience. And as I prayed, I, just, I felt this conviction. Maybe you felt a conviction like it yourself. And the conviction was, was as if the Lord was saying, you have a story. You have a story about my faithfulness. Caring for you. And since childhood, even through tragedy and the loss of your dad at age 10 and Ministry through the church to care for you and your mom and your brother in the season of sorrow and grief. And as I reflected on that and tried to hear from Jesus, so many things came to mind that the Lord had done. Expressions of His kindness. Expressions of His care. Expressions of His grace. Sunday schools who took an interest in a little boy who lost his daddy and made sure he got to go to camp that summer so mom could have a break. (laughs) Things like that again and again. It was an important opportunity for me as an adolescent to kind of clarify some things and begin to learn how to articulate the story that Jesus was writing in my life. Crucial moment when we begin to learn to articulate the story that Jesus is writing in our lives. Because Jesus wants to use our stories in very specific ways. And we begin to see that with Paul's story in Acts, don't we? We begin to see as Paul articulates his own story before different people. That again and again and again, Paul is telling the story and Jesus wants to use it in some very specific ways, doesn't he? Paul's telling a story that the Lord wants to use to rescue people 
to help them turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, he says, to the power of God. So that they can experience forgiveness and reconciliation and transformation. And Paul is telling his story and, let, and, and pointing to Jesus' story for those purposes. So I wonder, what's your story? And I wonder if your pastor or youth pastor asked you, hey, will you tell your story at this event? What would you say? And where would Jesus show up? Because it's crucial to take an opportunity to articulate the story. And here's why. We're going to see this in the text, and I think we're going to pick it up in our experience. Brothers and sisters, God wants to use your story so that others discover His purpose in their lives, in the church, and in the mission. God wants to use your story to help other people discover His purposes for them. Paul tells his story for the same reason. And we have inherited that. As believers, followers of Jesus, engaged in the mission. So let's take a look at Paul's story. See how it works out. Apostle Paul was in custody for two years. He got to Caesarea while a guy named Felix was the governor. Felix wasn't particularly worried about Roman, the technicalities of Roman law. He was content to leave Paul, who he knew was innocent, in prison for two years, hoping either for a bribe, right? He was hoping to get some money out of Paul or somebody, or just failing all else to keep the Jews satisfied because they didn't like this guy and didn't want him running around causing trouble. Well, Felix moves on. And Festus shows up as the new governor. And as soon as he arrived in the province, I mean, Felix left Paul for years. After three days, Festus is trying to sort this business out. You get the sense that this governor is a little more concerned with kind of following the letter of the law and the technicalities of the law than his predecessor. You may have observed that in some of your own political observations. Different folks take slightly different postures, don't they? That's how they administer justice and jurisprudence and things like that. So here's Paul, and he's, he's, he's having, this is happening again. He's having to deal with it. And Festus is trying to sort it out. So he goes over to Jerusalem, meets with the leaders there. They kind of tell the story. He's, 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 he's struggling to figure out what the problem is. Like, it's not clear that Paul's really done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. So he goes back to Caesarea. He says, you got to come up to Caesarea, and I'm going to sit down on my tribunal, and we're going to try to sort this thing out and figure out what to do. So they all get together and make accusations against Paul. Accusations that they can't sustain. They're not, they can't demonstrate. They're false accusations. They can't prove them. And Festus knows their false accusations. He knows that Paul hasn't done anything to violate the law of the Roman Empire. But nevertheless... He knows he needs to keep these guys happy because if they start causing problems and it gets back to Rome, he may not last very long as the governor himself. You know how it is as a politician. You've got to kind of keep your constituents happy, right? And that's very important. So we're told that Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, goes to Paul and basically says, hey, you know, 
you can stay here and be tried in front of me, or I can send you back to Jerusalem and you can be tried in front of them. And that doesn't present Paul with very good options, though, does it? Because if he stays in Caesarea and is tried by the Roman governor, well, he'll, get free. he'll go free because the governor's already said, like, I don't see the problem. But if he goes free, he won't be protected. And these guys who have brought the charges want him dead. So while he's in custody, it's almost like protective custody. It's almost like a witness protection thing or something. Like they're looking out for Paul. They're taking care of him. But if he's acquitted and goes free, he won't have the benefit of the protection of the Roman Empire anymore, will he? And so, the, that's, so that's not a super desirable option. Well, he could go back to Jerusalem. Trouble is, two years ago when he came up from Jerusalem to Caesarea, he had to come early because a group of 40 guys was planning to ambush him on the way and kill him before he ever got there. So, you know, <laughs> let's just go back down to Jerusalem. Chances are those same guys are still planning the same plan. So that's not the best option either, like out of the frying pan into the fire kind of thing in Jerusalem. So what does Paul do? He's looking at his options, and Caesarea is not super desirable. Jerusalem's even worse. What's he going to do? Well, you'll remember that Paul's a Roman citizen. That came up earlier after his arrest, right before they were about to beat, try to beat the truth out of him. He appealed to being a Roman citizen, so they couldn't do that. And so now he appeals to the emperor himself, because as a citizen, he has the right to request a hearing before the emperor, Caesar. And so that's what he does. And remember the new governor, Festus, is a bit more letter of the law than the last one. And so his response is, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you must go. So they put Paul back in custody and he kind of hangs out for a little bit. King Agrippa comes down. Got a new governor, it's appropriate for the king in this kind of province of the Roman Empire to come and greet him and do the standard welcome to town, welcome to the area, pomp and circumstance, let's throw a banquet and have a big party and just kind of play nice and figure out how we're going to work out this new political relationship. You can imagine what that would be like. So King Agrippa shows up and Festus kind of sits down with him. They're kind of chatting a little bit. He says, you know, I got this guy, Paul, and I really don't know what to do with him. I mean, I'll send him to the emperor because he made the appeal, but he hasn't really done anything, and it just looks like him and some other people, he's Jewish and they're Jewish, and they apparently have some sort of theological disagreement, and now I have to put up with it. So Agrippa responds, I'd like to hear what he has to say. And then Paul's brought in the next day. Pomp, circumstance, you can imagine with a king and a governor there that they're going to roll out the red carpet, so to speak. Paul comes in and begins to give his defense. And as he gives his defense, he tells his story. He gives his testimony. That's what we call it, right? You've probably been in a service where somebody gives their testimony about how the Lord has saved them or worked in their life or set them free from this or the something else. And so Paul begins to tell his story. And the focus of his story is on the change that Jesus has made in his life. His movement from battling against the church to becoming an apostle in the church. And the crucial moment happened 
on that Damascus road, didn't it? And there, he's on his way. And remember what he said. I mean, this guy is nasty. He says, I show up and I persecute them to try to get them to blaspheme. Then I'll have a better excuse to haul them off like that. Like, he's trying to prove, it's like planting evidence or something. He's doing something to try to make it worse. And so he's on his way and he says, as I was traveling, middle of the day, like it's already bright in the Middle East in the middle of the day, right? But there's a new light, and the light is so bright that it's blinding to Paul, and everybody just falls on the ground. And then he hears a voice. Paul, Saul, his Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul responds, and the way he responds is crucial. He says, who are you, Lord? And you'll remember that in the Old Testament, the name for God is translated the Lord. And so it's, it's almost like Paul is intuiting, like he's a faithful Jewish guy, he's having a vision on the road, bright lights, all this stuff. Like God is talking to him. That's what's happening here. And that's his assumption. That's, that's who are you, Lord? Like, who are you? And then we get this answer. The Lord answered, right? So he is attributing the title of Israel's God to whoever's about to speak. The Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, for Saul, everything changes. Everything changes. He thought his purpose in life was to defend his understanding of his religion. And if you didn't agree with his understanding, he might just kill you. Not an overstatement. Until the Lord Jesus spoke to him. The Lord doesn't simply call Paul to repentance. Jesus gives Paul a vocation. He gives him a purpose. And this is what it says. Verse 16, or chapter 26. Get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose. You want to know what your purpose in life, Paul? You want to know what it is? Here it is. To appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And here's, here's the purpose, Paul. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So here's your purpose. And your purpose relates to the purpose I have for the nations. It's not like I'm just saving you so you can be like, Safe, yeah, that's there, that's happening, but it's not the point. It's not the end all. It's not the, it's not the goal of the process. I'm saving you. I'm forgiving you. I'm redeeming you. I'm reconciling you to me so that you can carry the good news of my perfect love, my death, my resurrection, the reconciling power of the gospel to your neighbors and to the nations, Paul. 
so that they can experience forgiveness and so that they can be sanctified, so they can be transformed, so sinners can become holy. People who worship idols can worship the one true God. People who are far from me can be close to me. And when they come close to me, I'll share my character with them. And their life will be changed. And they will fill the world with the beauty of Christ's likeness. With their family, with their church, with their friends, and with their co-workers. And across the world, this is your purpose, Paul. And so he's got an opportunity now, years later, to tell the story, but he tells the story with a view to God's purposes, not only for himself, but for everyone else, all the others, because God wants to use Paul's story so that others discover God's purposes for them, namely reconciliation, transformation, resurrection, and mission. Let that settle in for a minute. Paul doesn't get up there and just plead his case. Oh, woe is me. False accusations. You guys know it. He doesn't even ask for mercy from them here. He just gives his testimony. He just testifies of the goodness of God's grace in Jesus. He's not particularly worried about whether he goes free. He's not worried about whether he dies. He's got an opportunity to preach to the king. He's going to take advantage of it. And notice what he does. This guy basically has an altar call with the king of the Jews. You, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa's kind of like, are you like, we don't know each other that well, Paul. You're trying to persuade me to be a Christian today? And Paul responds this way. And this, friends, this is where we need to land. This is what it means to be a part of the church. This. Verse 29, Paul replied, whether quickly or not, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening, Festus, his accusers, the court, all the attendants, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today might become such as I am. Except for the chains. <laughs> not want everybody to show up in prison, but I want everybody to know Jesus. I want everybody to know God's purposes for their life. I want everybody to be integrated into His redemption, into His saving works, into the way that He is fulfilling His promise to Abraham. Because Paul understands Paul understands that God has been at work for millennia. Thousands of years before, God made a promise to Abraham, a pagan. He said, hey man, I want to use your family to bless the nations. All the families of the earth will do it. And it was a tough go for Abraham's family. Like They weren't really much of a blessing for a really long time. They kept getting themselves in trouble and getting themselves enslaved and God would rescue them and then they send some more and they get themselves in trouble some more and they're not really blessing everybody. They're becoming more of a holy huddle, aren't they? And then Jesus shows up. And Paul discovers that Jesus is the yes to the promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to use your family to bless the nations, all of them. 
all the families of the earth. And Jesus is the yes and the exclamation point to that promise. And when Jesus presents himself alive to Paul, Paul does a 180. He's no longer a persecutor. Now he's a preacher. Now he's got a testimony to God's faithfulness to keep his promise to Abraham and to bless the nations. And that is God's purpose. His desire isn't to whisk us away to some otherworldly spiritual place. His desire from cover to cover in the Bible is to make creation abound with the beauty of his glory. And he wants to do that through Paul's testimony. And he wants to do it through your testimony. So what's your story? There are some strategies for learning to articulate your story. It's helpful initially to understand that Jesus doesn't work in everyone's life the way he worked in Paul's life. Some of you may have had what you call a Damascus Road experience, but I'm guessing a lot of us might feel kind of like I did when I was at Blue Link Camp, 16 or 17 years old, trying to figure out what do I have to say that's interesting? I heard somebody make the distinction one time between a speedboat conversion and a cruise ship conversion. If you've heard this before, just, just a refresher. Some conversions happen quickly and some kind of take a longer time, don't they? Kind of like a speedboat. If it's going, you can turn on a dime, can't you? Small vessel. You can get around quickly, especially if you got somebody behind you on a tube. You can sling them real good if you make a quick turn. But a cruise ship takes a lot longer to turn, doesn't it? In fact, if you're going to turn one, you better have a lot of space. And you'll start turning. And then you'll take a little bit more turning. And then you'll have a little more turning. And eventually, you're kind of facing 90 degrees, but then you take a little more turning. And it's kind of the difference between that Damascus Road experience. Paul's got a speedboat conversion. It's like he's going this way, boom, he's going the other way. But others of us, maybe kind of like my experience, was more like the cruise ship. We're all born into the world far from Jesus. We're all born into the world in need of salvation. Like nobody comes into the world saved. We all need the Lord to rescue us. We're far from Him. We're sinners. And over time, our parents faithfully read us the Scriptures, bring us to church, make sure we hear the Gospel. And over time, slowly, you start to see some fruit. And then later on, you might be thinking, well, I thought I saw some fruit, but now I'm not so sure. But, you know, eight-year-olds are tough. And then there's more fruit. Then there's kind of that season where we start to own our faith for ourselves. And that boat just keeps turning. And it takes, it takes some time, doesn't it? And so it's helpful to know, like, you don't have to have the Damascus Road experience to have a story. You might have that, and one's not better or worse than the other one. Though I'll tell you this, friends, 
I'd rather my kids have a cruise ship story than a Damascus Road a speedboat story. I'd rather my children not get involved in really rough stuff. <laughs> Amen? I'd rather my kids get up and say, you know, the Lord has been working in my life since I was a child. That's not to denigrate anybody's story. It's just to say, like, we tend to sort of platform people who have these fantastic stories. Addiction and atheism, all that kind of stuff. Like, I want to say, friends, let's cultivate God's long-term fruitfulness in the lives of the church and the family. That way, we... <laughs> We'd rather just set you up from the start than have to call you back when you're 40, you know? But it's helpful to know the difference, right? So what, what's your story? Is it a speedboat story or is it a cruise ship story? In your 20s or your 30s or your teenage years, or were you far from God and it was very obvious to everyone? And maybe, maybe you had to have that moment where Jesus shows up in your bedroom or Jesus shows up at that church service and smacks you on the head and says, hey, I'm here and I love you and I got plans. Wake up. And you do wake up. And I've got friends who've had this kind of story. And I worked with guys at the barbecue place who were very far from God. And later on, like, just had this moment where Jesus shows up and loves them and everything's different. And I love that. I love to hear those stories, and I celebrate that. Maybe that's your story. Or maybe you have a cruise ship story, and the Lord's just been working for years, decades even. And you find, you know, like, hey, I'm going to go to church this week, and I feel kind of drawn, and still trying to figure things out. I'm not quite sure what's going on here yet, but it seems like those folks love me. Maybe I'll go back next time. It just kind of keeps on happening just kind of keeps on happening. You know? So what's your story? If God's going to use your story for his, to help other people discover His purposes, it's helpful to know which kind of story you have. If you're going to articulate it, it's helpful to know which category it falls into. It's also crucial to understand that your story isn't the point. Jesus' story is the point. This is crucial because it's not Matt's story that saves people. Paul says in Romans, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He says in 1 Corinthians, it's the good news that we handed on to you that is the power through which you're being saved. Right? Our stories are more like a vehicle for the Jesus story. And so then that's the next question, right? What kind of story do I have? And then the question is, how does my story carry Jesus' story? Because I'm not the point. Jesus is the point. And that's Paul's story, right? Like all the way through. It's not just Paul's story. Paul's story is carrying the gospel, isn't it? Paul's story is carrying the Jesus story. I was a mess. I was a disaster. I was far from God. And then Jesus showed up, and Jesus forgave me, and Jesus is sanctifying me, and Jesus is comforting me, and Jesus is caring for me when I lost my family member, and Jesus is caring for me in that place where my kids are making some bad decisions. What's your story, and how does your story carry 
Jesus' story. Crucial thing. So, like, if you're going to ask the question, how, like, if the Lord wants to use our stories so that others discover His purpose, reconciliation and transformation, mission, incorporation into the saving acts of God in Jesus. And I need to know what kind of story I have, speedboat or cruise ship. And how do I tell that story? And when I tell that story, does it magnify the Jesus story? Crucial question. And I hope you spend some time this afternoon answering, like just sit, like take a minute and sit down with a Bible and a piece of paper and start answering the questions. How does the story play out? How does my story point to the Lord Jesus Christ who rescued me, who, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, who offered Himself as a perfect sacrifice for my transgressions. There may be somebody in the room who all of a sudden has realized they don't have a story. Several years ago, I was invited to do a lay speaker training in Methodism. That's where we kind of recruit church members and we kind of give them some training and if we need to fill a pulpit or do some different things, once you've had some training, we'll send you off and we want like, because the ministry of the laity is crucial. And so we try to do some equipping. This uh, was a, a weekend seminar on evangelism. And so we're talking a lot about how to share the gospel. And uh, a lot of the same things we're talking about today. My story and Jesus' story. And how does my story carry Jesus' story? And I gave everybody an assignment. I won't give you the same assignment publicly, but I do want you to do it at home, maybe with your family. Uh, I said, all right, we're here on Friday night. Here's, here's all the story, not your story, Jesus' story. Tomorrow, come back. you got two minutes. I want, to, I want you to tell your story, and I want you to practice. Like, we're friends here. Nobody's going to throw anything at you. It's going to be okay. You can kind of tell your story and how it's going to be a vehicle for the Jesus story. So we all go home on Friday night. We come back on Saturday, and we start doing this. And there's a guy there. His name's Mike. Mike's actually been here before. He's been to some of our events. Some of you have met Mike. And Mike is one of the most courageous men I've ever met in my life. Because we're sitting there with about seven, eight, nine people in the room practicing our testimony. And he gets around to Mike. And Mike says, you know, I've been a Methodist for decades. I've been the trustee chair. And I'm in the second level of lay speaker training. I've been through first level of lay speaker training already. And I've just today and last night realized I don't know Jesus. I don't have a story. Mike's one of the most courageous men I know. Because he could have faked it. He could have faked it. He could have come up with something. You could have come up with something. If you were in that situation, all of us could have come up with something. Yeah, I grew up in the church, and the Lord loves me, and you know, I, I went down front at the revival when I was 10, or whatever it is, right? You can come up with something to avoid 10 pairs of eyes, or however many people were there, like, shocked at your transparency. So you might be here, like you may be reading Paul's story, and you might be hearing God wants to use your story so that others discover his purpose. You might be going, I, I don't think I have a story. The good news is Jesus is ready to give you one. He's ready to give you one today. Right now. The question is whether 
you're willing to surrender to him and let him write that chapter. Not just the chapter, the whole thing. What's your story? Stories are made to be told, aren't they? That's the scary part, right? Like you can go home and sit down by yourself with a little piece of paper and start writing out, well, the Lord worked in my life in this way and Jesus met me on that day. And You know, I don't remember that specific moment of my conversion because my parents were really faithful and they brought me to church and I heard the gospel and just over time I discovered that I just, I love Jesus and I'm committed and, you know, so you're kind of telling that story and you're articulating. You can do that privately. It's not very hard to do. Challenge is... <laughs> when the Lord invites you or puts you in a position to share your story with someone. That's the scary part. That's the scary part. Because you never know what's going to happen, do you? You never know what's going to happen. The good news is you aren't responsible for the other person's response. That's up to Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ... And his Holy Spirit, that's their business. It's not your job to sell the gospel. It's not your job to negotiate the gospel. It's only your job to tell your story as a vehicle for Jesus' story so that other people discover God's purposes for their lives. Now, there are better and worse strategies for that. And frequently the story is more effective in the context of a relationship of trust. Turns out, 79% of unchurched people in the United States, like unchurched people, far from God, un, like you guys who show up here on Sunday morning, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. 79% of unchurched people are interested in having a conversation about the faith of their friends. Note, not the faith of strangers, but the faith of their friends. 79%. That's almost, that's like 7.9 out of 10 people. We'll just round up and call it 80. How about that? 8 out of 10 folks that you run around with at work and at ball games and what, like whatever you do. Like if you have a relationship of trust, they are interested in your faith. They're asking, what's your story? What's your story? So here's the challenge. I've already asked you to go home this afternoon and start articulating your story. Is it quick or was it one of those long, long turn kind of things? And where does Jesus show up? Like, what are the specific places where the gospel is happening and where mercy is experienced? How is the Lord at work? But here's the next thing. Who is already in your life and is eager to hear your story? That's something you need to spend some time praying about. And on that same piece of paper where you're starting to articulate speedboat cruise ship, my story, Jesus' story, those kinds of things, you might even just spend some time praying and write down three names of folks that you run into that you trust, try not to fall off the stage here, that you trust and they trust you. 
There are people who trust you. And your story, carrying Jesus' story, can change their lives. It doesn't always happen overnight. You may cultivate this for years. You may have a stimulating conversation about Jesus. And it may take time. Persevere. Stay the course. Don't give up. I went to Costa Rica a few years ago to work with a ministry that was engaged with rescuing people from human trafficking. Not your typical mission trip. It was like like crazy serious stuff. After I got back, the missionaries um, kind of sent out a story about one of the people that I met while I was there, like working on the streets in San Jose. And this person, after being in ministry, like after they had been in ministry with this person for seven years, friends, seven years of we love you, we care for you, have a cup of coffee, how can we pray for you today? Jesus loves you. We love you. Seven years. This guy goes in to the ministry and says, Jesus wants me to change my life. Seven years. Now, if they'd showed up the first time and said, turn or burn, I think that would have worked out very well. Seven years. Jesus story and somebody gets saved (laughs) not just on the inside but from the streets of San Jose some of you read the daily text from Seedbed and shared it with me yesterday about a couple of people who for years and years and years persevering in prayer and testimony. There are people in your life, there are people in your family, there are people at your workplace who need to know God's purpose for them. His love, His kindness, His grace, His mercy. And it's the kindness of Jesus, it's the kindness of God that draws people. And the question is, are we embodying that kindness and testifying to His kindness and His goodness? So you got your challenge. What's your story? And who trusts you enough to listen to your story? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.